This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 21st, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we start with online news editor, David Grimm. He talks with Megan Cantwell about what puppy dog eyes and decrepit spines mean about the history of dog domestication. And I talk with Michelle Marichal about a global study of honesty that used 17,000 lost wallets. I'm Megan Cantwell, and I'm here with David Grimm, online news editor, Science, to talk about two stories he wrote this week on dog domestication. Thanks for joining me, Dave. Thanks, Megan. So let's start with the origins of puppy dog eyes. When we say puppy dog eyes, these are kind of these big, sad eyes that dogs give us. Kind of makes you want to like either hug your dog or give your dog a treat. It's a very expressive face. And the question is, how did dogs develop this face? We don't really see this very much in wolves. And so it must be something particular to dogs. Why are some dogs able to make these innocent looking faces? What researchers did in this new study, it's a little bit morbid, but they they took the remains of a few wolves and a few dogs and they dissected their face. And they were looking for a couple of muscles. One of them actually raises the eyebrows and the other one widens the eyes. And when they work together, they sort of create these big, Mm -hmm. sad puppy dog eyes. And what they found was that these muscles were very well developed in dogs, but they were either not very well developed at all or completely absent in wolves. And so that helps explain why dogs were able to do this and wolves aren't. And in fact, an additional experiment, the researchers had strangers approach a variety of wolves, tame wolves and dogs. And they found that the dogs produced this puppy dog eyes, which scientifically is known as the AU101 movement. So probably a little easier to call it puppy dog eyes, but the dogs produced it about five times more frequently and significantly more intensely than the wolves did. Are these common in almost all modern dogs or do some still not have this ability to make these puppy dog eyes? And that was really interesting because they, in all the dogs they looked at, they all had these very well-developed muscles, except for the Siberian Husky. And what's Mm. interesting about the Siberian Husky is this is thought to be a very ancient breed. And so all this gets back to the idea that this is something that probably evolved sometime during dog domestication. There's this idea that we were first attracted to dogs or puppies and kittens in the first place is because their faces kind of remind us when they have these big eyes and these kind of rounded faces, they kind of remind us of human infants. And so the dogs that were more able to make these sort of this Mm -hmm. big sad eye look were probably much more favored in early dog history. Humans were maybe much more likely to take care of them, to want to keep them around. And those dogs made more puppies. And that helped this ability really spread throughout the population of dogs, which is why it's so common today. In essence, we really had an important hand in the evolution of puppy dog eyes. Yeah. So humans have been taking care of dogs for quite some time. And now moving on to another early domestication story you had was that many researchers thought that these early canines were actually used by humans as kind of work dogs to transport these large loads of materials or whatever. What evidence did they base this off of? 
we don't know exactly when dogs were domesticated, but we think it was, well, we know it was more than 15,000 years ago. And this was a time where people were not, they hadn't settled down. Our ancestors were not living on farms or really in villages. They were very nomadic, traveling from place to right. place. And so the idea is if they had dogs at this time, these wouldn't have been pets probably. These would have been working animals and they probably would have helped us hunt. They were kind of like the, the workhorses of their day. We maybe loaded cargo on their backs or they helped us pull sleds that had either us or just a bunch of materials, help us get from place to place. And as you said, they thought the evidence for this was, if you look at some of these ancient dog skeletons, you see this condition known as um, spondylosis deformans. And basically this is, is extra bone growth. Sometimes it's just extra spurs on vertebrae. Sometimes it's these big scoop-like structures. And actually, if you actually go to the story on the site, you can see a picture of what this looks like. Mm -hmm. And they just sort of made this assumption, well, these dogs had these kind of defects in their spine. This is great evidence that they indeed were helping us pull cargo because pulling cargo must have how, somehow messed up their spines. What initially brought them to this link between this overgrowth on the spine and being used to pull large loads? You know, they see this in cattle and they also see it in sled dogs and cattle that have been pulling things. And in sled dogs, we know they pull sleds. So the idea was, well, that's the evidence. And it's been sort of this idea that's been perpetuated in the scientific literature for decades, but nobody had actually gone back and looked to see, well, does this actually have a one-to-one -one correlation? Do dogs that pull sleds actually have this? And do dogs that don't pull sleds not have this? And that's what was done in this new study. Right. So could you talk about how that new study delved into whether these dogs were really carrying heavy loads and that that's why there was a deformation on the spine? Yeah. So researchers looked at a few hundred samples. Some of these were from modern dogs, some of them that were, had just been pet dogs. Some of them were dogs that had pulled sleds. They were sled dogs. And they looked at wolves too, wolves that lived in captivity and wild wolves. And these were all museum specimens. And what they found was that there was absolutely no correlation that a lot of dogs had this uh, spinal condition, regardless of whether or not they pulled sleds. They also saw this condition a lot in wolves. And we know wolves are not pulling sleds for us. So the only correlation they really saw was that the older the animal got, and this held true in both dogs and wolves, the more common the condition was. And by nine years old, almost every dog and wolf they looked at had this condition. So really they think it's just a condition of the natural wear and tear mm -hmm. of getting older. It really has nothing to do with pulling sleds. So were the samples they looked at only ancient dogs or modern dogs as well? They actually only looked at modern dogs. Okay. And so they were really want, want to see is if we're only seeing this in modern dogs that pull sleds, that's going to be further evidence that it's tied to sled pulling. But they basically saw it in all dogs. And, 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 and again, the older the dog was, the more they had this condition, regardless of whether or not they were pulling sleds. So it really kind of debunked this idea that this can tell us anything about whether ancient dogs were pulling sleds or hauling other types of cargo for us. So what could this tell us about the early history of dog domestication? Well, the fact that it was only seen in older dogs, and we do see it in dogs, in ancient dogs, suggests that these ancient dogs we're looking at were old dogs. Mm -hmm. And that's really significant because in order for a dog to live more than a few years, somebody has to take care of it. Somebody mm -hmm. has to be feeding it, sheltering it, and if it gets get, getting injured, taking care of it. And mm -hmm. so this what this does suggest is that a lot of these ancient dogs were cared for by people. And again, this is something we suspected. We don't have a lot of evidence for it, but now we actually do have some evidence that seems like people were helping these dogs get to old age in a time where we had very few resources to spare, that we were spending some of these resources on dogs, which indicates that there must have been 
a very special relationship between humans and dogs, even going back more than 10,000 years. And you mentioned before that the history of dog domestication is still not entirely certain and fleshed out. But how do you think both of these new findings kind of play into the larger narrative of humans role in domesticating dogs? Well, right. And, you know, we still don't know exactly how dogs were domesticated, but, you know, there is a suspicion that wolves were following us around. And as they got closer and more comfortable with us, they sort of became dogs. But humans must have helped out somehow in this process. Mm. At some point, we had to bring dogs into our community and say, okay, you are one of us now. You will travel with us. You will live with us. We will care for you. Both these studies is really showing is that humans really played this direct role in not only caring for dogs, but actually really even changing the way they evolved. All right. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks, Megan. David Grimm is the online news editor of Science. You can find a link to his stories at sciencemag.org podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with Michelle Marichal about a study that involved placing lost wallets around the world and seeing what people did with them. This episode is brought to you in part by Magellan TV. Magellan TV is a new type of documentary streaming membership founded by filmmakers and producers that brings together premium content that dives deep into diverse subjects and interests. Stay current with the latest findings and gain insight into the topics you're passionate about. Want to know more about the nature of a black hole or where climate change is taking us? These are the stories of Magellan TV. Magellan TV offers documentary movies, series, and exclusive playlists genres like science, space, history, nature. In fact, they have the deepest collection of high-quality science programming available anywhere, with 13 science playlists curated specifically for enthusiasts. New programs are added on a weekly basis and can be watched anytime, anywhere, on your television, laptop, or mobile device. Stream without interruption and enjoy a wide selection of programs in 4K. Magellan TV is compatible with Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Google Play, and iOS. Start your exclusive two-month free trial today at MagellanTV.com slash Science Magazine. That's MagellanTV.com slash Science Magazine. Let me set up a dilemma for you. You found a wallet. It's got ten dollars in it a few business cards and a key what do you do do you find the owner what if the wallet had ninety dollars in it would you do something differently and what is this scenario what do your actions in this scenario say about honesty researchers set up this dilemma 17,000 times in around 40 countries and found something unexpected unpredicted by models and by human intuition Michelle Marichal is here to talk about this result. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Sarah. So what was it? Were people more or less likely to return a wallet when it had money in it? So much to our surprise, actually, they were more likely to return wallets that contained more money. And so across the board, all these different countries, if there was money, they're more likely to return the wallet. And then if there was even more money, so $10 versus $90, you saw an even larger percentage of people returning it. Yes, that's right. What factors did you find were most important when people were making a decision to return a wallet? So our results suggest that it's a combination of altruism, so people caring about the owner of the wallet, and what we call theft aversion, so an aversion to seeing oneself as a thief. 
So to study altruism, we actually had an, an experiment where we removed the key but kept the amount of money the same. In that experiment, we just manipulated how much harm you would do to the other person by not reporting the wallet, but keeping the incentive to steal the same. And we found that reporting rates dropped quite a bit, suggesting that people actually care about the other person. Mm -hmm. What is important to note, however, is that it's difficult to explain our results with altruism alone. You could only explain our results, why reporting rates increase with the amount of money, if you're willing to assume that people place more weight on the other person than on themselves. This stands in contrast to what we typically find in experiments on pro-social behavior. People care a little bit about others, but they care still more about uh, themselves. And this is where the survey work comes in, where you ask people how they would feel about themselves if they had a wallet with more or less money in it. Yes, we need another motive than just altruism. And we believe that theft aversion can explain our results. To study theft aversion, we conducted survey experiments with nationally representative samples in the US, UK and Poland. And we asked the participants how much it would feel like stealing if they do not report a wallet in the situation we created in the field experiment. Mm -hmm. And the results suggest that the more money is in a wallet, the more they think it feels like stealing if they would not report the wallet. If you would not report a wallet without money, you're just a lazy person. But if a wallet contains money, it would feel like stealing because you actually are gaining something from not returning the wallet. Right. Well, how did these wallets get out into the world? This started in 2013. I had one of my students who spent an exchange term in, in Finland. We seized the opportunity at that time and asked him to turn in lost wallets at the counter of various public and private uh, institutions. So he was acting as a tourist and mentioned he found the wallet outside around the corner and asked the employees to take care of it, of these different institutions. Like a bank or a post office or a hotel. Exactly, yeah. Why did you turn them into institutions instead of, say, leaving it on the street and watching someone pick it up? So the big advantage is we have more control over the situation, in particular who takes part in our study, than if you would just drop it on the street. So you can imagine that if you, if you drop a wallet on the street, it very much depends on how many people are walking by, whether it's a rainy day, whether it's a sunny day, and so on. We can get rid of many of those nuisances. And we also collected a lot of information about the situation. So we can really see, does it matter whether there were other people standing around or not, uh, and so on. There's a lot of wallets spread all over the globe. How were you able to keep track of them? Each wallet has three business cards inside, and those business cards have the function of identifying the owner of the wallet because they're always the same business cards. It creates the impression that this wallet belongs to this person. Each set of these business cards had a name, an email address, and to that email address, there were, was also a number attached. And this number and name combination was unique for every location where we turned in a wallet. 
So then we were able to trace back every response we got to the place where we actually turned in the wallet. The person who found the wallet could enter the email address and then get a response back that says, we don't need it. You're fine. Thank you for letting us know that kind of thing. It was game over. You knew they wanted to return it and they then just what kept the money? Exactly. So the owner contacted them automatically and said that he just left town and that the content is not so important to him and that could just keep it or donate it to charity. Very interesting. In those cases where we actually picked it up, it was like 98% of the amount of money was in the wallet. So suggesting that it's a good indication for people returning actually the money. Almost across the board, there's a difference. There's the likelihood of returning an empty wallet and then a much higher likelihood of returning a, a wallet with money. The relationship is continued from country to country. But do you have enough statistical power to say something about the bottom third and the top third with respect to they're more likely to be returned in this country and not less likely to be returned in this country? Yes, there are significant differences across uh, countries. We also did some exploratory analysis to find out what factors actually can explain these differences. So one obvious candidate is a country's gross domestic product, so a country's economic development. There is actually a strong relationship between the reporting rate and the country's economic development. But the problem is uh, this is mainly correlational. So it right. can you can interpret it in two different ways. So one could be, for example, that when people are more honest, then it's easier to make business and therefore those countries flourish economically. Or you could also think of it that people become more honest or behave more honestly when economic times are favorable. This was an unexpected result. If you look at the kinds of models used to predict this behavior in the past, if you just ask people what they think will happen, both of those expectations were violated by this study. Why do you think that that happened? Why do you think that this was not predicted? In one of the studies, we asked a sample of Americans to predict the result, and we actually also incentivized them to guess as accurate as possible. And we find that they predict the opposite result. We added also a couple of questions to understand the motivation. So what they think, how important different motivations are. And what this suggests is that people have a rather cynical or pessimistic view of others in a sense that they think they place too much weight on self-interest rather than moral motives like this aspect of theft aversion, for example. So this is an uplifting story. We should be less cynical. We should be less cynical about our fellow humans. Yes, exactly. And this misprediction, we also found it in a sample of experts. So people who are used to think about incentives in a large part of their jobs, namely economists. So we invited uh, top 5% academic economists to predict the result. And we find, again, even though they were a bit better than the average person, but they also predicted that the response rates would go down with larger amounts of money. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to study honesty? Why is this an important thing to take on scientifically? I started together with my co-author, long-time co-author Alan Cohn, I started an entire research agenda on the determinants and consequences of 
honest behavior. This is because honesty is essential in almost all our social and economic relations. Now, you can imagine that there are regulations and laws in place that help limit cheating and dishonest behavior. However, honest behavior is in many situations difficult or impossible to monitor and enforce. We therefore rely to a large extent on people's intrinsic honesty. Think, for example, of governments who largely depend on people's honesty when it comes to declaring their taxes. Right. So you see honesty as something that can be detected and and then maybe influenced? Yes. So there are simple experiments we can use, for example, in the laboratory to study honest behavior. And our paradigm is now one uh, that allows you to study honesty in a field setting. So we can look at what are the determinants of uh, honest behavior or how can we make people more or less uh, or what factors make people more or less behave more or less dishonest. Well, how do you build on this? What needs to be updated or how how are you going to think differently about this question of honesty going forward now that you have this data? I think it tells us that uh, practitioners and also policymakers should be encouraged to adopt a bit a broader view of human behavior when you design incentive structures. Mm-hmm. Especially there may be opportunities to promote honest behavior by making people for example, more aware of the negative impact their behavior can have, so tapping on their altruism part, or they could make it more difficult for people to persuade themselves that they are honest people when doing something wrong. Right. So that would then tap into the, the theft aversion part. Okay, Michelle, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Michelle Marechel is a professor of economics at the Department of Economics in the University of Zurich. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.